We'll be reading out of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 26 through 42. Please turn there with me. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So here we are. We are in the Gospel of Mark. We're in Gospel of Mark in chapter 14, beginning at verse 26. And in this context, the first portion of our scripture, Gospel of Mark, beginning at verse 26 there, that paragraph is the second slice of bread in what we've called along the way a Marcon sandwich. This is the second slice of bread. So the meat has been on top of it, the Lord's Supper, and the other slice of bread was the, the warning of the betrayal of Judas. The Marcon sandwich that we have there draws out the faithfulness of the Lord to pour himself out for many in light of the faithfulness, faithlessness of the disciples. So, so the, the sandwich is Jesus pouring out his life, is shedding his blood. He's, his body will be broken as sacrifice, whereas Judas will betray. And the disciples here at the beginning of our passage will deny. In light of the faithlessness of the disciples, whether it be the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, we have highlighted the faithfulness of the Christ in the sacrifice of his own body. We see Jesus in our passage today moving into the climax of the obedience to the will of the Father. His faithfulness, his love, and his shepherding care are evident in our passage. And I want you to make note of that. Yes, his faithfulness here. Yes, his suffering is here. Yes, his his faith in the Father and relationship with the Father is highlighted here. But we also have here 
evidence of his shepherding care, even at this moment of his greatest suffering. Elsewhere in John, it talks about how he loved them. He loved them to the end. We see that happening in our passage this morning today. For it is written. This is how our passage begins. In verse 26, it says this. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. The first words of verse 26 are actually in reference to the Scriptures. And no, I'm not actually referring to where Jesus quotes the Scriptures here. Consider the hymn that they sang. What did they sing? Let me tell you right now, they did not sing Amazing Grace. They didn't sing How Great Thou Art, faithful as they may be to the Scriptures. They sang the last of the Hallel Psalms. They sang Psalms 115 through 118, as is the practice of the people of God as they would gather in Passover after the meal to sing these psalms. And so I thought this morning we should take a moment just to look at them, reference them. Psalm 115 in the first verse says this, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. They sang this. The new covenant in Jesus' blood stands on the same ground and has the same end as Psalm 115. It stands on the steadfast love and faithfulness of our Lord. Those are, that's the covenant love. When it speaks of steadfast love and faithfulness, that is, that is a phrase that is a code word for covenant love. And so it is also not only on the basis of covenant love and mercy, but it's also to the end of the glory of the Lord alone. Not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. Then we have Psalm 116. I'll read verses 1 and 15. 100, Psalm 116 goes like this. I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And I ask as we look at our passage today, Is there a more precious death than the death of the first saint? The death of our Savior, Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many. Surely the Father will hear his voice. Surely the Father will hear his pleas for mercy as we read Jesus' prayer in the garden today. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Psalm 117 Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. You hear steadfast love and faithfulness? That's with reference to his covenant. Praise the Lord, all nations. We're reminded that Jesus has told us his blood is poured out for many. For many, praise the Lord. And then Psalm 118, this precious psalm, verses 1 and 14 this morning. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. You hear it? You hear the covenant love? The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And that's how it ends. What we read today is the beginning of the salvation moment. Perhaps some of those of you who have been with us long enough have heard me preach about the atonement. And you've heard me call the atonement the at-one moment. 
the moment of salvation. The Lord's covenant of salvation has been in the mind of God since before the beginning of time, has been expressed throughout the people of redemption throughout time. But in this moment, in this moment that we see beginning in our passage today in Gethsemane, we see the moment, the beginning of salvation appear as Jesus does the work of obedience to the Father unto death. Jesus is my salvation. On the basis of the very suffering that he enters into this night about which we read today. And so let's read it. As we continue on to verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now it's interesting to me that Jesus often, as, as we see him through the gospel of Mark, as we're walking slowly, deliberately through this gospel, Jesus often demonstrates that he has access to divine knowledge. We know that Jesus is both God and man. And at times he has, appears to have an access to divine knowledge, and at other times he seems to walk like any other man, though in faith between, before the Father, filled with the Spirit. We know that Jesus has been anointed by the Spirit. We know that he's been filled with all power, but don't underestimate the role of the Scriptures in Jesus' knowledge. How often does Jesus say something that is markedly, prophetically true, but his words are, as it is written? And everybody's like, oh, right? Jesus is demonstrating a powerful dependence upon the scriptures. It's the dual dependence that we often confess in our prayers in our gatherings. We pray that the Lord would work according to his word and his spirit. Isn't that how we pray so often? We see Jesus doing the same thing in our passage today. Let me give you an example of another time that he does it. Back in Mark chapter 9, verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. How did Jesus know that he would suffer many things? Well, I can tell you one way that he tells us that he definitely knows that the Son of Man would be betrayed and suffer and die and rise. He says, as it is written. That's how he knows. How does Jesus know of his impending suffering? Surely because this is the purpose for which he was sent, but also because of the testimony of scriptures. Are you compelled to know as it is written? We have access to, by the grace of our God, in drawing near to us both his word and his spirit. We have this same access. What has Jesus been doing here in Jerusalem? He's been speaking of his betrayal, suffering, death, and even resurrection. Surely he's speaking with a divine knowledge of history, future history. But it's also he's recounting simply and trusting in the revealed word of God in Scripture. That compels me. I want to open up the word so that my life can be conformed to the revealed word of God in Scripture. Which leads me to this question. Well, if I want to be conformed to it, and if we see Jesus conforming himself to what is written, what is written? Well, in our passage today, Jesus references Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Strike the shepherd, scatter the sheep. 
In Zechariah 13, 7, he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, this is an important passage. Really, all of Zechariah is important because it reveals to us the nature of divine work in judgment. And specifically, the will of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, at work in the striking of Jesus and in the scattering of his disciples. There is a divine, sovereign work that stands behind all of what we've been seeing in these passages these days. Zechariah prophesies that at this very moment when Jesus will suffer unto death, the disciples will fall away. And Jesus is simply recounting for them, really exegeting. He's having a little Bible study with the disciples in the garden that day. And he says, as it is written. This isn't the only time when Jesus has fulfilled a prophecy from Zechariah. It's also in accordance with Zechariah that Jesus rode into the city on a donkey. Yeah, that's in Zechariah. Now, I know I haven't given a great deal of attention to Zechariah's connections with the passion of Jesus Christ, but it's becoming increasingly clear to me that I should. And so this fall, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to spend time, a 12-week sermon series in the minor prophets, and we're going to walk through each of these prophets and just considering what do they have to say to the people of God and how are so many of these prophecies fulfilled in the Christ. But this morning, we have this specific message from Zechariah, strike the shepherd, scatter the sheep. Here's how Jesus interprets that. Look at verse 27. Jesus interprets it this way. You will all fall away, for it is written. You will all fall away. That word all, it's a central reality of our faith. There is none who is righteous but the Lord alone. All Others fall. Jesus alone is faithful, and he turns neither from the left nor to the right. He is a wholehearted, single-minded, faith-filled obedience. And even if we were to call this suffering and crying in Gethsemane some sort of wavering, we have to note where the struggle takes place. Where is Jesus in what is the closest thing that we could call a moment of weakness? Where is he? With the Father. Independent prayer. Friends, that's not wavering. That's not what that's called faith. He brings the trouble and distress of his body, of his mind, of the spirit to the Father in heaven. There's not one other in all of humanity that has remained faithful as our Lord has remained faithful. All will fall away. And when he is stricken, All are going to scatter. The Lord alone is our strength. But even there, he's faithful. Notice, you strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter, right? But look at how it continues. Verse 27, you will all fall away, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He's going to rise, and he's going to gather his sheep again. He never stopped caring for them. They never stopped belonging to him, but actually on the basis of what he's about to do, he secures them, and when he rises, he gathers them to himself. He will, as the good shepherd that he is, he will regather his flock. Can you see the shepherding nature of the Christ in our passage today? 
He's going to gather his flock to himself. Even as he is literally about to suffer, what many commentators, believers who have spent their time in this text have, believe is the greatest suffering of Jesus is actually in Gethsemane. He's about to fall down in bloody tears. And he's tending to his disciples, shepherding them, giving them confidence. In light of the severity of the warning to the one who would betray him, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born, right? But he makes a distinction. He makes a distinction between the failure of Judas. You see, they may be holding that in their mind as they hear, they're going to fall away too. And Jesus has just said that the one who betrays him, it'd be better for him to not be born. But instead he tells these who will fall away, I will regather you. There's a distinction. Judas's failure is final. The other disciples, you will be regathered. You belong to me. Now, the second thing I want us to see in this little paragraph is, is Peter, right? He rises up as Jesus is shepherding them, as he's caring for them, and he's giving them everything that they need in order to endure in this season. He rises up, he says, I won't deny you. I want you to see the flow of the conversation. Please keep yourself bent down over the text this morning. Verse 27, Jesus makes a general statement of warning based in Zechariah, right? Strike the sheep, strike the shepherd, scatter the sheep. Then in verse 29, after Jesus has explained this, Peter boasts his confidence, he will not fall away. I know, I heard you, Jesus. Now, I mean, I won't. I won't. Jesus' response in the next verse, verse 30, Jesus says, this very night, three times. Peter's response, to death, right? Give me faithfulness or give me death. Confident pride. And they all said the same. Peter leads them in all that boldness. And they all agree. Not one, not only will they all fall away, but they pile on false promises. And they puff up in pride as a prelude to their failure. It reminds me of promises that are often made in the prayer of confession, right? I'll do better next week. I will, Lord. I know that you said I'm weak. I know that you said I needed to, to walk in dependence upon you day after day. But this week, this week's different than last week. I'll be strong. I'll be super strong this week. Instead of a faith-filled cry, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus doesn't commend Peter to us. But it does commend the tax collector. Have mercy on me, a sinner. So simple. This is Peter's, great, Peter's greatest failure here. He fails to humble himself before the warning of the Lord. The Lord comes to Peter and, and to the disciples and he gives them this warning. You're gonna fall away. I'm gonna be stricken and you're gonna scatter. I think of the times in my home, I'll say something clear and straightforward in my household and immediately there are just words, unbidden. I was not looking for responses, but there's words, piles of defensiveness, excuses beginning to waft through the air from my children, right? But that isn't the behavior that's somehow unique to my children. I didn't just call out my kids here, did I? 
It's the disposition of our hearts. We hear something that we don't like about ourselves, and our immediate response is to argue and to justify ourselves. Now imagine if Peter would have heard Jesus' reflection upon the Scriptures as it is written, I'll be stricken, by the way, and you will fail and scatter. According to the Scriptures, what if he had heard and instead responded, the Lord bless us and keep us? I'm the chief among those, Peter should say, I'm the chief among those who are rash and often wandering. What is this failure you speak of? What must I do to be saved? The tragedy of my own faithlessness. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But that's not Peter's response. That's not any of the disciples' response. And friends, examine ourselves. When has that ever been our response? He makes one of the greatest errors a sinner can make. He appears to think it's reasonable that others might fall. Even if all the others fall, I won't. It's reasonable to me. I can envision a universe in which there are sinners around me. But not me. Even if all the others fall away, he's confident that such a failure is not something he needs to be warned about. It's interesting then that Peter's failure is explicitly unique among the disciples' shared failure. They share failure and scattering. But Peter denies him. One could understand the disciples scattering, running away after the soldiers arrest Jesus. I mean, what would you do? Arrest me too. Fall down and weep and cry out to God in prayer. (laughs) You're gonna run. We're gonna run. I understand where that comes from, but Peter's bold. Well, he makes his way to the courtyard outside of where Jesus is being held. Perhaps he's still clinging to some shreds of his own self-confidence. I won't fall away. I won't run away like all the others. But it's precisely in that place of his pride, as we'll see in just a few weeks, that Peter's fall is made complete. It's a thorough failure. Jesus turns to him and says, oh, you'll fall. You'll deny me. Three times you will. It's not a moment of weakness. It's a thorough denial. And the passage in verse 31 says, they all said the same. It's interesting. Peter is a leader among the disciples. And they follow him. Elsewhere in Luke, when it walks through this passage, Jesus says, but when I restore you, you'll you'll feed my sheep. When you're restored, they'll follow you. But in this moment of pride, they do follow him, and they all are puffed up in pride and arrogance. Meanwhile, as the disciples are ignoring and rejecting Jesus' warning, Jesus leads them outside the city. They go outside the city to a place of Jesus' own great trouble and distress, a place of which he has been warned in the scriptures, surely in prayer, in the spirit that he has been warned suffering is coming. And it comes to him in this valley in Gethsemane. In verse 32, if you look at it with me, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Gethsemane, it's a valley at the base of the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. Apparently this is a common gathering place, so common that Judas knew that that's where they would be. Here in this valley, literally of the shadow of death, Jesus is distressed and troubled. Look at verse 33. He, looked, he took with him Peter 
and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. What does Jesus do in his distress and trouble? We're all familiar with that, right? It wouldn't take a great deal of work to to observe and remember what distress and trouble feels like, what that experience is. But what did Jesus do in his distress and trouble? This is yet another time in Mark in which we're given an opportunity to look closely at the man, Jesus. His need is set before us in stunning clarity, and it's called distress, and it's called trouble. He needs support, right? And we see where Jesus seems to understand that he needs support. He needs support from his disciples, and specifically these brothers, Peter and James and John, and he brings them with him. And then he goes just a short distance away from them where it appears that they could overhear his prayer before the Father. And he needs not only the disciples, he needs not only his friends, he needs not only the little church, he needs the Father. Jesus, who is himself God, shows us the depth of human need we face in distress and trouble. We are right to cry out, and, and, and our, our, our cries are right to, to need a direction that is prayer before the Father, but we're also right to seek the support of the church. You see that Jesus did this. He doesn't say, I'm about to experience something difficult. I need to go and be alone with the Father. No, he says, come, watch and pray with me, and he takes the three to draw even closer to him. We're right to seek the support of the church around us in times of trouble and distress, but our brothers and sisters' failure to support us is no excuse not to go to the Father. Do you hear that? And this is where I get kind of messed up. You see, I know that I'm right to seek my brothers and sisters in the church for help, but when they don't, that's all I can think about. Jesus goes to be with the Father, even three times in the midst of the failure of his disciples. I've been hearing often those who speak of church hurt. Friends, when we gather as the body, it is supposed to be a place in which we receive healing balm of the gospel. To instead experience thoughtlessness, at times cruelty, it does a particular harm to those who experience such suffering. But even here, Look at Jesus. Where does he go? What does he do in the face of thoughtless, right? Prideful cruelty of this little church in the valley of the shadow of death. What does he do? He goes to the Father, even as repeatedly he calls upon his friends to join them. (laughs) You guys failed me. I told you you would, and then you are. and, And then I go off and I pray to the Father, and I come back and I say, come on guys, I need, I need you to watch and pray. And they don't. And he goes off to be with the Father. I need you to watch and pray. And he goes off again to be with the Father. Verse 35 gives us the very words of Jesus as he falls to the ground even as his little church fails. What's his prayer? What is the cry of his suffering? Look at verse 35 with me. And going on a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, this is interesting to me, that we're actually told what he prays twice. We're told what he prays, and then we're quoted his prayer. 
He falls to the ground and prays that the hour might pass. And then the content of his prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. His prayer is that the hour might pass from him. Just as he taught us to pray, Jesus prays to the Father, right? And his prayer begins, Abba, Father. Some have suggested that Abba means Daddy. Honestly, it's, it's unlikely. It doesn't really mean daddy. The, the word does imply intimacy, but not a childish intimacy, but rather something between father and daddy. I, I think something similar to just dad would do. Jesus isn't addressing one who simply occupies a technical role of father. He's not, he's not addressing a role. He's addressing not a male parent figure, Jesus is talking to his father, Abba, Dad. The fully grown Jesus, facing the most mature distress and trouble, calls out to his father, whom he knows, and who knows him in the depths of his soul. And we're we're supposed to reflect on what took place there. Romans does. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17 say this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is a call to intimacy with our Father, our Abba. As his beloved children in Christ to bear us up in the face of sufferings, just as did our elder brother Jesus Christ. To draw near to our Father, Abba. Father. Jesus prays a prayer. He speaks to his Father. He makes his request known. He prays in utter faith to his Father in heaven. And so I would ask you this, what's lacking? He made his request known to the Father. Why is this not a simple matter of ask and you shall receive? I would just ask that I not have to drink the cup, that this hour would pass from me. Does Jesus not have the proper faith? that he would ask and not receive? No. See, that's the whole point. Jesus has perfect faith. Faith is to trust in the power and the goodness of the Father. We've seen this elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark. The Father is able, and the Father is good. But what does it mean that we in our humanity know what is good? You see, faith confesses that we do not possess the wisdom to know what is good. Rather, faith simultaneously confesses a trust in who is good and that he knows and he wills and he is able. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 is also a reflection on this moment in the prayer of Jesus. In the days of his flesh, 
Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Reverence. Do you hear in that word something that is deeper than a simple ask and receive on just a, a simple guttural level of our own wisdom, faith? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Did Jesus' father hear his prayer? Did Abba listen? Yeah. In the resurrection, Jesus was saved from death. And he would fulfill all righteousness and accomplish all obedience through ongoing suffering and death according to the wisdom of Abba. And Jesus was filled with faith to that end. In prayer, look at verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Able and willing. This has been a theme in the Gospel of Mark where where one confesses, if you will, you can make me clean. That's the confession of the leper. If you will, you can. Another confesses, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You see, I think you will. I just don't know if you can. One trusts that God is able but may not be willing. The other confesses that Jesus has compassion. He's surely willing, but he may not be able to do anything about it. But Jesus knows the Father who both wills and works according to his good pleasure. He is willing and able to do good. Two wills. This is often a conflict for us as we we think about prayer and going before our God in, in seeking him for what is good, there's one will that's something like a, you might call an all things being equal sort of will. If there are no other things to consider, if there are no other circumstances or positive or negative effects to this decision, then it should be so. If it were possible, Jesus says, Jesus is praying for relief from this particular suffering, not on the condition that somehow the Father is incapable of some miraculous rescue, but on the condition that such a rescue does not derail any other good and perfect purpose of God's work in history. You see, if all things were equal, may the cup pass. But according to your divine wisdom, work. I submit to that will. And so, there's another, if there's, there's another way to make requests in light of God's will, our requests are made in light of divine wisdom. This is the meaning of Jesus' words, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus isn't saying that he wants one thing, but the Father wants another thing. As if their wills were divided. He's agreeing with the Father that suffering and death, all things being equal, are not good. I don't care if it was the death of Lazarus that caused Jesus to weep or the suffering of Jesus in the garden or on the cross. It's not good in and of itself. But also he is confessing that there is a divine wisdom, a sovereign good in this suffering to which he is willing to submit himself. Prayer as humble alignment to the will of the Father is a faith filled labor to discover and come under divine wisdom. I'm going to say it again. Faith 
as humble alignment to the will of the Father is the faith-filled labor to discover and come under divine wisdom. The second thing being more important than the first. You and I so very often don't discover what divine wisdom is. But we can still come under it. Submission itself is the path to a discovery of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is it not? Let's begin there. Let's begin as a people submitted to the Lord. And as people submitted to the Lord, we discover what is good. And before we move on from the anguish of Jesus' prayer, let's make one final observation. This is from R.T. France. He writes, this is in strong contrast, this experience of Jesus is in strong contrast with idealized portrayals of martyrs who go gladly to their death. Listen to the words of Jesus at his death. We looked at it at Good Friday. Jesus cried in Mark 15 with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not the record that we have of of saints being burned at the stake in hymn-like prayer. The suffering of the Son is real. It's palpable from this moment through his cry on the cross. There is a cup of suffering that no martyr will drink. Do you see that? Jesus drinks a cup that no saint who comes after him will ever have to drink. And so we can face this momentary affliction with peace, with hope, with faith, with endurance, with satisfaction in the sacrifice of Christ given for many. We learn from Jesus that it's right and good to cry out in distress. We're right to gather the church near us in our suffering, and we're right to go directly to the Father, our Abba, in our time of trouble. And in prayer, we we both realize the comfort of his presence, and we learn submission to his good and perfect will. And it's in prayer that we learn intimacy, not only with a knowledge of the wisdom of God, we learn intimacy with the character with the being, with the person of our Godhead. And in prayer, we learn the wisdom of his ways. This is something the disciples haven't learned quite yet. Watch and pray. Jesus says this to them repeatedly. Watch and pray. We see, again, the interaction of Jesus with his disciples. I think it's good, just like we did in looking with Jesus' interactions with Peter. Let's just go back through the passage and see how the narrative kind of takes place. Verse 32 Jesus goes with his disciples to Gethsemane. And what does he say? He says, sit here while I pray. Then Peter, in verse 33, James and John are drawn into an even closer intimacy with Jesus in his moment of suffering. Verse 33 again, Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled with his disciples nearby and he's in prayer. And Jesus asks his disciples in verse 34, remain here and watch. Verse 35 and 36, Jesus falls and cries out to the Father, remove this cup. You see a movement into further and further distress. Verse 37, Jesus finds the disciples sleeping. To Peter, he says, could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus directly connects Peter's failure of watchfulness with his impending denial. 
verses 39 through 41, again and again, a second and a third time, Jesus goes off to pray and returns to find them sleeping until finally in verses 41 through 42, the hour has come. Betrayer is at hand. I think a key to understanding that narrative is verse 38. Jesus' wisdom here. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know what Jesus finds as he's distressed? He falls down. That's a physical activity. And a work of the mind and body, he falls down in soulful prayer. What we find is, with Jesus is prayer strengthens the flesh. Prayer strengthens the flesh. There is in us higher and lower desires. Again, R.T. France draws this out. We, we aspire to things like justice, right? We aspire to courage. We aspire to sacrifice and love and bravery or even Peter's boldness. We aspire to these things, higher desires, but we also desire comfort. And after a long evening, sitting and eating a long meal, praying, walking, somewhere about midnight, we desire rest. We desire for our stomachs to be full in the day and our minds to find sleep at night. All of these, I call them lower desires, but they're, they're not bad. Those desires are good. They're, they're the creation of God. The, the way we're supposed to live our lives, filled in the day and resting at night. This is shalom. These are good desires, but the lower desires are right to be submitted to the higher desires. Do you hear that? They're simultaneous, but one is submitted to the other. It's right to sacrifice sleep, to bravely keep watch at night. It's right to sacrifice food in order to act in mercy for another. I think it's what Jesus is speaking of when he says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's speaking of what R.T. France calls the higher and lower desires, that we may aspire great courage and boldness, but our bodies and minds make a counter offer. That in that particular moment are not compatible, however good they both may be. It's in prayer that our spirits are conformed to the wisdom of God, and it's in prayer that our flesh is strengthened. We remember Jesus' declaration at the beginning of Mark. He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Tell me what the flesh is after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights. Weak, right? And strengthened in prayer, he says this, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in prayer, his flesh is strengthened. His lower desires are brought into submission to faith. It's striking to me that not one time in this passage does Jesus get what he asks for. And look through the whole thing. He doesn't even get disciples that'll listen to his warnings that they'll fail. But he remains faithful He remains filled with faith. We see Jesus both here and on the cross, even in his most abandoned moments of distress, yet cry out to the Father in faith. 
Friends, as we close, I want us to see Christ. I don't want us to be called to our higher desires. I don't want you to live your better self. I don't want you to search deep within yourself and order your desires rightly. I want you to be submitted to faith. That even if Jesus was to hear say, Zechariah, it applies to you too. You too will scatter many times. But friends, we worship a risen Lord. He has conquered sin, death, and the devil. We have a unifying hope. The call this morning is not to a greater order of desires. The call this morning is to faith. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, you alone are good. You alone gave yourself as a ransom, not just for many. I can see myself there, unlike Peter, who could see why everybody else would need a ransom. He could could man up on that day. No, I'm in the many. I am in the, in the number of those for whose sin your blood was shed. This is the call to the saints this morning to confess our need for the Christ and be filled with faith that he has done good. And we'll see the Father answer this prayer in sustaining him through his will, even to death on a cross. We'll see Jesus raised from the dead and his church will be gathered to him. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would strengthen us today, that we would be emboldened, that our wills would be aligned, that we would have new desires stoked within us by your word and your spirit, by watching the Christ and following after him, but we would not presume to trust in ourselves, but we would trust in you. May we often bring your church, bring our brothers and our sisters with us to go off in our trouble and distress in prayer to Abba. Thank you, Lord, that you redeem, you cleanse, you equip and you encourage. You are a good shepherd for our souls. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you would work in the midst of the congregation according to these things in Jesus' name. Amen.